Lately, it seems that we are getting more and more confused about what a church actually is. So let's take some time to set the record straight. A church is not a building, though a building can be used by a church. A church is not a denomination, though a set of beliefs should be important to a church. A church is not about Sunday, though a church should not forsake meeting together. A church is not about one person or personality, though every church should be pastored. And church is not about size or growth, though every church is called to make disciples. So don't think of church as an address or a location, but rather think of church as mobile and on the move. Don't think of church as something built or planted, but rather think of church as something deployed. Don't think of church as where you are for an hour each week, but rather what you are every day of the week, because the church is the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Feet shouldn't sit still. Hands shouldn't be idle. Feet go. Hands do. This is the church. Church isn't what you're sitting through right now, because you are the church. Now go and be the church. Before we go and be the church, let's talk about what it means to be the church. Uh, and this is what I want to talk about today. We've been in a series now called Arise. We're talking about the power of the resurrection. Today I want to talk about why the resurrection of Jesus is good news for the church and what this means for us. Um, <clears throat> I was speaking on the West Coast a couple of weeks ago, and at the end of my message, I had this woman come up to me, a young lady. And I, to this day, I don't know if she was a Christian or um, or not, if she was, she's a babe in Christ. She came up, she said, I really appreciate what you have to say, but you used a word a few times, and I don't know what the word means. And I said, which word is that? And she said, the word gospel. And I just gave her a hug. I was like, I'm so sorry. I just, sometimes I take for granted some of the language of the church. And she said, what does it mean? And I said, here's what you need to know. When you ever, whenever you hear the word gospel, the gospel is the good news of Jesus. And anytime we come together, the gospel is what we talk about, it's what we celebrate. And, and I think the questions we always have to ask is, what is the gospel and who is the gospel good news for? If the gospel is good news, then what's it about and who's it good news for? So I want you to open your Bibles to a place that you've probably read many, many times. I want you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 this morning. Um, especially if you've been in churches of Christ, you've heard sermons on Acts 2 a lot, but it's not just church of Christ people. Like, I mean, most Christian groups, there are a few chapters that we go to quite often. Most Christian groups, you know, they know where the Great Commission is. They know Acts 2. Now, sometimes we don't do as good of a job living out some of these familiar passages. And, and I know your temptation right now because I've been there before. There are times where you hear a preacher stand up and say, open your Bibles to Acts 2, and your thought is, I've heard so many sermons on Acts 2, and you kind of begin to check out. Okay, here's what I did this week, and it was so cool, and I encourage you to do this stuff too. Whenever you read the Bible, it's really good for you to take time to listen to the Bible because you never know when God's going to speak a fresh word into your life. When I took my preaching courses back at ACU, all of my preaching professors, the thing they taught us is whenever you preach a sermon, the first thing you need to do is you need to listen to God. And you keep listening to God and you keep listening to God. And if Thursdays come and you don't have a word, you need to kind of remind God, like Sunday keeps coming every week. I need a word. But 
listen, listen to the Lord. And it's amazing what you find out. This week I spent time listening to Acts 2 because this is something I've read hundreds, if not thousands of times. And it wasn't like I was just looking for a fresh word so I can be some young preacher and stand up in front of people and blow you away by this new revelation I got from God. But I just said, God, if there's a reminder I need to give people this week, give me a reminder. If there's a fresh word, give me a fresh word. So what I have to share is what God has revealed to me. Acts 2.38 is a very familiar place for most of us. It's where Peter preaches a sermon and says, Repent and be baptized, all of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, verse 40 and 41, you see that 3,000 people responded to that message. This is like one of those big, massive baptism days. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced something like this. I remember last June, we had a few weeks where we had over 15 people in this church or connected to this church, give their lives to the Lord, and they were baptized into Christ. And it was, a, it was amazing. I have a friend, Rick Ashley at the Hills, and over the last month they have baptized over 120 people in their church. I don't know if any of us have seen something like 3,000 people. Most of, some of you grew up in towns that don't even have 3,000 people. So it's this big, massive day. <clears throat> now, I got a friend. He's a mentor of mine. He grew up in uh, Missouri. He went to, uh, on a mission trip back in the early 70s. And they left Missouri, they were driving down the interstate in Illinois, a few states over, and as they're driving on the interstate, they passed by this bus, and on the side of the bus was such and such Church of Christ. So they start hanging out the window and like waving at these people, like, hey, we're one of you, and you're one of us, and the people thought they were wacko, right? Because my friend was in a van that didn't have Church of Christ. Now, if you drive one of our vans, one of them has Church of Chris, because one of you ripped the tee off, I guess, all right? But they didn't have anything, so they're driving in this bus. They're doing like a speed up or slow down. These people are crazy next to us. So my friend in his van, they started talking. They're like, how can we let these people know that we're one of them and they're one of us? So someone got a piece of paper, took a Sharpie, wrote Acts 2.38, put it on the window, and the people in the bus were like, they're Church of Christ. They're one of us, and we're one of them. And they pulled over, and they exited, and had this beautiful connection. All right? <clears throat> Because we've heard a lot of sermons on Acts 2.38. Here's what I want you to know. Is, is as cool as Acts 2.38 through 41 are, if you only read Acts 2 for Acts 2.38 through 41, you miss out on a lot. We don't just need Acts 2.38 through 41. We need all of Acts 2. Acts 2 is a gift to the church in greater ways than you could ever imagine. Now, before we dive into Acts 2, remember, and we've been talking about this for a few weeks, but the primary thrust, the big message in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament is that Jesus rose from the grave. That is central to it all. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, when they're choosing the 12th apostle, one of the, like, one of the descriptions of what an apostle had to have is it had to be someone who could bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Um, throughout the rest of Acts, and I do not want to minimize the cross at all, but the word cross shows up one time in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2. The crucifixion of Jesus, that word, that phrase shows up two times in the book of Acts. I'm not minimizing the death of Jesus at all. I'm not minimizing the cross. What I want to do is just elevate the resurrection. That what God did through Jesus is how he birthed the church and launched the church and empowered the church. So it's not that the cross isn't important. It's that the resurrection has to be the good news that is shared throughout the world. In fact, look in your Bibles in Acts chapter 4. If you want to flip over a couple of places, it's up on the screen. In Acts chapter 4, verse 33, the church gets together. They've, they've been experiencing persecution. And with great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them. 
when they got together after experiencing all these threats, what the apostles did is they went back to what they knew was true. Jesus rose from the dead. And this is why we are doing what we do. All right, now, open your Bibles. Go back to Acts chapter 2, and let's go through this. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4 says this. When the day of Pentecost, which today is the day of Pentecost, there are Christians around the world today celebrating Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now look in your Bibles and imagine if you were in whatever place that was. And I want to talk more about that place in just a moment. But whatever place they were in, if you were there, wouldn't, would you be freaking out? How many of you have ever been in the middle of a hurricane or tornado or some violent wind? Because what we read is this isn't just like this little breeze of God that, you know, this five mile per hour little gentle breeze that makes you feel really good. It it is described as a violent wind. Now, if they were inside, a lot of us have experienced a violent wind outside. You see branches moving and leaves flying around and dust coming off the ground. But if you're inside and there is a violent wind you can just imagine papers flying all over the place and you're, something's happening. And not only a violent wind, there are tongues of fire that rest over the heads of people. And if you're me, it's morning time. Maybe your first thought is, I hope that tongue brushed itself, right? Before it descended or us, you know, whatever it is, is hanging and, and hovering. You got a violent wind, you got these tongues of fire. Now here's the deal. Throughout the Bible, When the presence of God shows up, like when God comes in all of his power, God reveals himself. How many times do you see the response of people being that they think they are dead? They fall to the ground. They are on their face. The presence of God is so thick. The power of God is so mighty that you can't stand there anymore. You fall on your knees. You fall on your face. And this isn't just something that happens in the Old Testament you got people coming to the presence of Jesus and do this. You have people in, in the book of Revelation who encounter the glory, the mighty, the sovereignty, the beauty of God, and they are on their faces, which will be our response one day when Jesus comes back and makes all things right. Ain't nobody going to be crossing their arms, you know, and, or, you know, hands in their pockets with, oh, you know, that was all right. I mean, that was okay. You're blown away by the mighty presence of God. But here, when they experience the power of God, you don't see anyone falling on their face this time. You you don't see them falling on their knees. You don't see them lifting their arms in the air. What you see is that they begin to speak words. And I want you to notice in verse 4, they're already speaking before there are crowds who have come. They're already declaring something before there are people from the outside who need to hear what they're declaring. So what God is doing is He has sent the Spirit of God upon His church. They're experiencing this mighty act of God, and we aren't told what they are saying, but I think it's safe to assume that the church, they are encouraging one another, declaring to each other that God is on the move. This is what Jesus told us to come to Jerusalem and wait for, and now it is here, and now we are part of it, and we don't know what God's going to do, but God is doing something in this and through this. Um, Now, let's talk about the places for a moment. Where's the place? 
And let me give you like the two big arguments of what the place may mean, because you, maybe you've never really even thought much about this, but um, whatever the place was, some people argue that this place was the temple. After all, it is Pentecost, which for a Jew, there were three festivals that you celebrated every year that you could not celebrate anywhere. You had to be in Jerusalem to celebrate it. Uh, they're traveling feasts. It like you and me, like when Thanksgiving comes around that you can't celebrate Thanksgiving anywhere. You have to be at one place to celebrate Thanksgiving. So everyone is traveling to that place. So when Pentecost came, all these folks were coming to Jerusalem, not just people who lived there, but because this is one of the three festivals that God commanded you to be there. So maybe it's the temple. After all, there are 3,000 plus people who hear this message. So what is a place that could hold thousands of people? Now, for some people, they say, well, Luke is usually very specific when it comes to the temple, that he would let you know when something's happening around the temple, and he doesn't in Acts 2. And other people argue that, well, this is an extension of Acts chapter 1, where in Acts chapter 1, there were 120 people who were believers in Jesus, who were gathered in the upper room of a house of Mary. So apparently Mary had a space that could accommodate a lot of people. And that's where they gathered, and they would pray, and they would seek the Lord, and they added a twelfth apostle. So maybe it's in that upper room, and it's the place where they were. Now, <clears throat> I hate to have to give you an answer like this, because some of you may be thinking, well, tell us, what, do you, what is it? What's the place? I don't really know, all right? But here's what I do know. And this changes the rest of human history. It changes the rest of the Bible, is that God's location has shifted. There is a shift in the location of God. That God has now moved away from the institution as they knew it. And now God has chosen to dwell inside of people. There is now this shift from no longer is it the temple where the glory of God dwells. And you have to go there to repent of your sins and be atoned for sins with all these sacrifices. But now you become the temple of the living God where now your feet don't have to go to a temple, you become the temple and your feet now move as the temple of the living God. Because up to this point, the Holy Spirit was very alive and active since the creation of the world. But the Spirit of God, and especially in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would convict, would roam, would touch people, would do things. But the Spirit of God was not indwelling inside of people. This is now this gift that comes through death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So whatever it is, rest assured that Acts 2 is declaring that there is a shift in the location of God. God now lives and works in and through his people. And in all this crazy stuff that was happening, a violent wind, tongues of fire that were descending. Um, I live in Binghampton, and sometimes some wild things happen in my community. And when wild things happen, we don't run towards the wild things. We run away from the wild things. Whenever there's anything that looks or sounds like violence, we don't go to it, we go away from it. But if you notice in verse 5, what happens with this crowd is the first word that is used to describe what the crowd does is the crowd gathers. Whatever it was that God was doing in and through His church, His people, it was so intriguing that the people on the outside were not afraid of it, they were drawn to it. Because what they hear is God is saying something in their own languages. So they're drawn to it. Look at the words that describe what the crowd did. They're up on the screen. All right. Uh, Verse 6, they gathered and the crowd was bewildered. 
In verse 7, they were amazed and they were astonished. In verse 12, they're amazed and they're perplexed. And in verse 13, because this always happens in any group, right? There's someone who is sneering. Because anytime there seems to be the movement of God and the activity of God, there's always that one or maybe a few who sneer. And it's not that they're, they're, they're doubting. It's that something wacky's happening. These people are just crazy. Now, the crowd is drawn in, and what they hear, you can see in verse 11, what they hear is that these people are declaring the power of God. That's the message. Now, I wish there were like some footnotes telling you exactly how the power of God was being talked about. But what they heard in their own language is that they're telling stories about the power of God. The stories they heard were not declarations about how bad people were. It wasn't how you all killed Jesus and you should repent of that right now. That, that those, those are not the stories that we're hearing. What they heard were the power of God. When you think about stories of the power of God, stories that would come to mind to most Jews, stories that highlighted all their festivals were stories of the God who delivered people out of Egypt, the God who delivered, the God who set free, the God who liberated, the God of steadfast love, the God who liberates and sets you free, not just from something, but to something. So the stories of the power of God are being shared. And I think this is a good message for the church that whenever we live and we tell stories of God, the stories that we need to come from our lives are stories that are bearing witness to the power of God, what He has done and what He is doing. Usually when I sit with people and I'm just getting to know them, I, I love asking, like, how did you come to faith? I mean, how did you come to know Jesus? Who were the people that God used to usher you in? Daniel Wakefield was teaching a class Wednesday night. Daniel had a friend who, Daniel just on the spot, had his friend stand up and share with us how he came to know the Lord. And this this guy said he was an atheist, knew very little about Jesus. And when he first went to church, it was the love of the church for three years. It was experiencing the love of the church, the love of God through the church before he came to understand the knowledge of God. He came to be a Christian because the way the church would love each other. When I sit with people, I've yet to ever hear someone say, well, what drew me into God is when I saw that Christian friend of mine on Facebook who went off on how bad the president is or how godless the presidential candidates are. And just the anger of venom just drew me in and I couldn't resist. I had to give my life over. I've yet to hear any stories like that. The stories that let people know how good God is are stories that bear witness to the power of God. And thousands of people were drawn into this. They were brought in. Now, there are those who, uh, one who, uh, these people sneer. And what they said was, these folks are just drunk. So Peter stands up and he preaches this sermon. And to start off with, Peter's like, hey, man, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. In which I'm sure there were some who were like, yeah, well, my uncle's was, you know, he's been drinking since seven this morning. <clears throat> so maybe some people would question that. But Maybe what the church needs is we need to be confused with crazy drunk people more often. And what I mean is this, all right? There are those who are so comfortable in their way of thinking that, that their thought was, these people are so crazy, the only thing I can place on this experience is that they're drunk and out of their minds. And for the comfortable, whether you're drunk on alcohol or drunk and full of the Holy Spirit, maybe people should look and be able to see, man, something's different in these people, and it's a little off. It's a little crazy. Peter says, man, we're not drunk. It's only nine. And then Peter quotes Joel. 
And did you know this is the only time Joel shows up in all the New Testament? I'm sure one day Joel's going to be sitting around with like all the other prophets. And he's like, how many times were, were you guys mentioned in the New Testament? And people like Amos are like, man, I didn't get any playing time in the New Testament. And Daniel's like, well, my name was mentioned once. But it was Jesus in Matthew 24. And Joel's like, man, one time, but Acts 2. I got, I got playing time in Acts 2. It's the only time Joel's mentioned. And Peter references What he references is this time in Joel where he says, look, the day is coming when God is going to pour out his spirit on all people. Women and men and daughters and sons are going to be full of the spirit of God. And what Peter is declaring to all these folks around is that something new is happening. Something brand new is happening where no longer is it just men being, boys being circumcised. And this is the covenant. It's that men and women and all people, the Spirit of God is coming upon them. Something brand new is happening. Now, look in verse 22. Because up to, the, up to verse 22 of the book of Acts, the name of God has been mentioned twice in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit has been mentioned multiple times in Acts 2. The name of Jesus has yet to be mentioned. Think about that. This is like one of the most famous chapters in the Bible. And up until verse 22, there's no mention of Jesus. It's God and it's the Spirit of God doing something new. And when Jesus is mentioned, I think Peter is very strategic. And now he talks about Jesus. So check this out, all right? Verse 22. You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth. If you mark or take notes in your Bible, a man. Mark a man. Attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know. And this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. When Jesus is described by Peter, it's as a man and this man and Jesus of Nazareth. Like Jesus has a place where you can go and you can see where he grew up. It was Jesus, Peter describes it in a way where he is as human as human can get. And what he's saying is all the good stuff that flowed in the life and ministry of Jesus came because of the power of God that worked through him. At no point when Peter is starting this sermon is he calling Jesus the Lord or the Messiah or the Christ or the anointed one. It's a man, this man who was fully reliant upon God for all that that he did. It was Jesus who trusted in God to work wonders and powers through him. Look in verse 24. But God raised him up, God raised Jesus up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power, or it was impossible for him to be kept in its power, because this is what death wants to do. It wants to have this grip on people that holds them down and refuses to ever let them be free. And what Peter declares is, at one point, for a few days, Jesus was in the grip of death, but God set him free. Now, I think this is one of the greatest expressions of trust in the entire Bible, if not the greatest expression of trust, is that Jesus would trust that God would raise him from the dead. Everything else in Jesus' life that he trusted God with, they came in moments when he could verbally lift up a prayer to God or express uh, that I'm weak and I need you to give me strength. So when Jesus is praying in the garden and trusting God with his life, that Jesus is able to express himself and think thoughts and his heart is beating with the Lord. Uh, When Jesus is even on the cross in a moment of weakness, he's able to pray 
for God to give him strength. Yet Jesus knew when he died, there would be no thoughts that are thinking towards God. There would be no way for him to verbally express that, God, I'm in a moment of weakness. I need you to give me strength. Or, God, you know, there is pain coming upon me. Help me to endure. Help me to persevere. There's none of that. When Jesus died, he knew he was going to have to trust God that when I go brain dead and my heart's no longer working and blood's not flowing anymore and my body grows cold, I'm going to trust that when I go into this death that God's going to be able to lift me out of this. If Jesus could trust God with his death, what can't you trust God with? If Jesus could trust that in a moment where he could not think thoughts or express prayer, his heart wouldn't beat, what, in the, what can you not trust God with? Peter keeps teaching, and he's pointing to the Old Testament, and he's quoting David, and he's quoting Psalms. But then it comes to verse 32, and here's what Peter says. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured out this that you both see and hear. It's this beautiful image of how, it all, how it's all gone down. So what Peter says is, here's what's happened. Jesus died, he rose from the dead. When he rose, he ascended, he's sitting at the right hand of God. And when he took his seat at the right hand of God, it's like God said, all right, Jesus, hold out your hands. And Jesus opened his hands. And God placed in Jesus. Jesus received from God the, the Holy Spirit of God. And what Jesus did when he received the Spirit from his Father is he looked at the earth and just went, like what God has given me, I'm now going to pour out on humankind. That boom, the Spirit of God is now at work and flowing and indwelling and moving and launching this thing called the church. And then you come to verse 36. And this is the end of Peter's sermon before he's rudely interrupted by people, all right? What he says is, therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. What started in verse 22 and 23 with Peter describing Jesus as a man and this man and Jesus of Nazareth, someone who was human as human as can get. Like he wasn't just some deity who looked like he was human. He was a man who breathed like us and walked like us. But then when he gets to verse 36, it's not just a man anymore. This is the man who through his obedience to God has now been made the Lord and the Messiah of all. And he's the one who was crucified. Now, sometimes when we read verse 36, we think it's that line of that Jesus was crucified that convicted people to the core. And I'm sure it played a part in it. But I think for all these folks who were Jews, who were were hearing this sermon from Peter, what got them is the declaration that this person who we thought was a man isn't just a man. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. He is the one that our grandparents told us to be waiting for. He's the one that our festivals point to. And yet, he's not just a man. They came to believe through Peter's message that this man is the Lord and he's the Messiah of all. So, yeah, the crowd then interrupts Peter's sermon to say, okay, look, we believe you. What do we need to do to follow him? And Peter let them know. Repent and be baptized, all of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and that you may receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 of them gave their lives to Jesus that day. I'm sure there was someone in the crowd who was like, this has already gone an hour and a half. Please, no more baptisms, because there's always that one, right? They just kept coming, one after another, 3,000 of them. 
whole new allegiance, a whole new shift, a whole new way of thinking and living. But we can't stop reading in verse 41. Because as amazed as we can be by a bunch of mass baptisms, a lot of baptisms, the question we've got to ask now is, what did the church do? It wasn't just that Jesus launched the church. It's what did the, what did the church do? And in Acts 2.42, you see they devoted themselves to a few things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayer. You see throughout the rest of Acts 2 that they got together every single day and they broke bread in the homes of each other every day. And I think at this point, there were some people outside of Jerusalem who came to Jerusalem for this festival and they experienced the power of God in their midst and this new thing God was doing. And they never went back home. They stayed and they connected and invested in this new movement of God. They took care of each other. But what you see throughout the rest of the book of Acts is this beautiful balance of gathering and scattering that the church would get together and then the church would scatter. And they didn't scatter from each other because they didn't like each other. They scattered for the sake of the mission. They scattered because God was calling them outside of whatever gathering they were in to be the very people God was calling them to be. And there are some churches who get really good at gathering and they're really lousy at scattering. And then the pendulum can swing and there can be churches who get really good at scattering and serving and and be invested in compassion, but they get really lousy at gathering. But what you see in the book of Acts is there's this beautiful balance, and the people who've given their lives to God realize how vital both of these are. Because there can even be individuals who think, well, I I just want to get together with people. I want a fellowship. But fellowship doesn't necessarily mean church. And there can be individuals who say, I just just want to be in soup kitchens. I just want to be serving. And all, all that's good. And it's kingdom work, but... Just because you do that doesn't mean you're fully investing in what Jesus has in mind for the church. Discipleship becomes this holistic approach to life with God. Where we get together and we slow down and we remind each other of the powers of God, the power of God that is still at work in this world. And then we move because we know we've been equipped for a purpose. Um, If you've been to Ground Zero before, there's a church in Manhattan called St. Paul's Chapel. Will you just show that first picture up there? St. Paul's Chapel is the oldest standing building in Manhattan. It's been around since the 1700s. Uh, Before the capital was moved, when the capital of the United States was in New York, there were presidents who worshipped, or uh, um, I guess the capital was never in New York, but there were presidents who would visit New York early on. And when they would go there, they would often worship at St. Paul's Chapel. George Washington, if you go there there today, you'll see a pew that was George Washington's pew. Now, don't think when you die that we're saving your pew for you in this room, all right? George Washington has his pew there. Um, When the towers fell almost 15 years ago, St. Paul's Chapel is literally across the street from Ground Zero. And you can pull up pictures today. You could Google St. Paul's Chapel, 9-11, 2001, and you can see dust and some debris that landed around the yard, but nothing hurt that that church. And it became this haven. People all over the world were sending stuff to St. Paul's Chapel. If you'll go to that next picture, it's really hard to see this, but those are are the pews of St. Paul's Chapel that were just covered with letters and gifts. And uh, there's a big sign that's still in there today that, Uh, that the state of Oklahoma sent. You have states that were sending stuff. You had survivors of Hiroshima in Japan who were sending 
these gifts of how sorry they were. If you'll go to that next picture, there were, uh, this became just within a few hours after the, the towers fell, it became this church where people came and they had these candlelit services. But then what happened is the first responders, you had all these people who were climbing through debris, trying to find people who were alive trying to clean up a mess, and anytime they would hear the sound of human life, they're trying to find them. They came and they knocked on the door and they said, we need a place where all of our volunteers and all of our workers can come after working for hours and hours, a place where they can come and be nourished and edified and where they can have food and Gatorade and water and a place for therapy. So the church, 24 hours a day for months, opened their building for firefighters and police officers and volunteers who would come in. And you can go there today and you can see these pictures inside of St. Paul's Chapel. You can go Google it and you can see some of these pictures. There were massage therapists who would come in there every day, would say 24 hours, where people could come and they would massage feet and give I mean, body massages for people who were just worn out. There were places where people all over the world were sending gifts of water, Gatorade, food, protein that they could eat. There were sometimes musicians who would come in to play music. They could just serve as a form of therapy. But I think the beautiful thing about what was happening there is what the church needs to know today. That anyone who went to St. Paul's Chapel to have a massage, to receive therapy, to be nourished, everyone who went in there knew that they were being equipped to go right back out to serve. You didn't just come in for a bite to eat and then go home. It wasn't just a place for you to come and sit for a few minutes. You were coming so that you could be nourished edified, encouraged, because you knew you were going right back out. And when you went out, you knew that you had a place where you could go right back in. And isn't that a beautiful description, a beautiful image of what the church is? That we come together because our souls and our hearts need to be tended to. And we come with brothers and sisters that we trust, that these are people that I can just lay myself bare. And I know these folks are going to love me back to health. But that we also know that when we come in this room and we, when we meet together with each other, it's not just to meet and hang out and enjoy fellowship and call that church. But that we know that we're being equipped to go and be the people of God. That this isn't just where we come to meet with God, it's where we learn how to meet with God everywhere else. So if you're uh, people who are receiving people for prayer, will you go ahead and move to those places? I just want folks who are sitting down to see where... Some of our places of prayer are this morning. For shepherds, will you go ahead and take your positions? I started praying last night, as I do every Saturday night. I'm like, God, what is the word or phrase you want me to pray over the church? Who are the people I need to be very intentional about how I pray over them? And there there are nights where I feel as if God's response to me is just pray. Just pray for people. And there are nights when I go to bed and throughout the night and early on Sunday morning, I feel like there is a clear word of God or phrase of God that I'm supposed to be praying for. And as I went to bed last night, the word that God kept placing on me over and over again throughout the night and this morning was there are people who were coming to church tomorrow morning who were hopeless. And the word hopeless kept coming before me. And I, I don't want to sound sensational, all right? But I don't know if that's a word that describes where some of you are today. 
But if that, if that fits where you are, I want you to see there are places where you can go to receive prayer. And it's not stuff you even have to bring before this entire church. You have, I see Kathy McCoy, I see the Montgomery's, I see other women, I see some leaders in the back who they are just here to receive you for prayer, to speak and declare and pray a blessing of God over you. If there's someone here who is hopeless, I hope that you have heard the good news of Jesus this morning in a way that you have been given a little bit of strength to keep going. If there's something you need to bring before this entire church, if there's someone here who wants to give their life to Jesus today, you're tired of trying to live life as your own Lord, your own Messiah, without the care and the power of Jesus, this is a beautiful day, a wonderful day for you to confess him as Lord and be baptized. And if so, our brother Jim Berryman's up here to my right to receive you. Can we stand together? And before we sing this song, Kip, if you want to go ahead and make your way up here. Will you just bow your, uh, bow your head, close your eyes? If you're willing and comfortable, maybe just open your hands to the Lord. God, for the people in this room who are hopeless or weary, who are in need of nurturing, who need to be tended to, I pray not only that you will be at work in their lives this morning and in the days to come, but that you will awaken someone to the left and the right to give them the hug, the handshake, the word of encouragement that they need. God, I pray as we see the fullness and the entirety of Acts chapter 2 and all that you are and how you launched the church, how you believe in the church, how this was your plan A, you don't have a plan B, how you have called us into this beautiful life of discipleship. I pray that you give us the same fearlessness you gave the church early on in the book of Acts. Remind us that we have not been called into a life where safety rules the day, but we are called into this great adventure where obedience is what matters. Our prayer this morning is if any words came out of my mouth that didn't honor you and didn't speak truth, that those words will fall to the ground. They'll bear no fruit. They'll be trampled underground. Uh, But if there are words I spoke that are true and they resonate with your heart, your mission, your nature, and who you are, may those words sink deep into our hearts and bear great fruit this week. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's sing together.